0: Roar, 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 roar. This is Research Software Engineer Stories, coming straight at you from U.S. the U.S. Research Software Engineer Association. Welcome to RSE Stories. I'm Vanessa Socket, and joining me today is Daniel Neust, a researcher in the Spatiotemporal Modeling Lab at the Institute for Geoinformatics at the University of Münster. Daniel is finishing up his PhD and has done a lot of work looking at practices for reproducible research with a specific focus in geography and geosciences. So first, Daniel, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, thank you, Vanessa, for having me.
0: So I definitely want to spend some time talking about reproducibility, but first let's talk about you. Take us back however early you think is appropriate in your life or training, and tell us how you originally got interested in research or programming.
1: When I started thinking about what university degree I want to study, I was looking around and um, I was pretty interested in informatics. And then I found out about this um, study program called Geoinformatics. And it sounded really exciting to me because it was about modeling how the earth works and helping researchers, helping domain scientists to develop software to solve important questions around Earth. So I joined that program and started studying geoinformatics in Münster. And that turned out to be a great choice for me. So it was everything that I was hoping for. I could work with computers, I could program, and there was always the connection to something outside in the real world. I feel pretty fortunate that I made that choice and that I could stick with that area of uh, research and development. And I really got into programming also through the studies. So I did some programming at, at high school, but I really learned to develop software as part of my studies. Afterwards, I um, took a first job as a basically research software engineer, though it was not called that at the time, at a small company. Also in Münster, 52 degrees north, who does applied research in the field of geoinformatics. And I could really then start working with customers as a consultant and professional software developer. And that, of course, really helped developing my skills further to have experienced software developers who can help me and could advise me. And uh, I could really hone my skills in, in the area of software development. I then had the opportunity to go back to university to pursue a PhD that I face completely different challenges when it comes to software development, and I'm still enjoying it every day that I have new problems where I need new methods to solve them.
0: So if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying that to be happy and fulfilled as an engineer, it's really about finding new challenges and new problems.
1: Yes, I totally agree. So one thing, I was also a student representative uh, during my studies, and one thing we would ask the new students, the freshmen, are you interested in riddles? And if people said, no, I don't like riddles, we tended to say, well, then you should think about studying something else because computer science and programming is really a lot like solving riddles every day. And I think that's what makes it exciting.
0: So when you go back and you think about your experience in your training, when you're doing core research, can you tell us something surprising about how the earth works that the average person might not know?
1: I'm not that much of an expert, really, to maybe tell you something that you've never heard before. But what I found really fascinating and what I enjoyed in my studies also was that I basically had to take basic courses in geography, landscape ecology, climatology, so to understand the basics there, to be able to work with scientists from these areas and to develop software that helps them. I really... I think gained an appreciation of how everything in the earth works so perfectly well together and how lucky we are in a way that everything turns out and works together just the way it does. That is a very fragile system that really, I think, sinks in if you take all these different lectures and learn about all these different perspectives and that you understand that there's people who study the atmosphere for years and years and there's still new things to learn and people who study how water shapes the earth, and there are still many new things to learn there. I think there's this never-ending stream of new things and details and how everything plays together. I think that's what I've found interesting about Earth.
0: When you did this sort of transition between being kind of a student or an academic to your first job at 52 degrees north Was there any point where in your mind you said, you know, I'm transitioning from being a researcher to being more of a developer, or did you always see yourself sort of as a combined role?
1: So the role I had at the company was really in between research and software development. I was working more in research projects, but I also had the opportunity or the duty, you could say, to work on projects that were with commercial customers. And I really felt some pressure of course, but I really felt the change that the software that I develop is not something that is used for maybe some research data visualization and then some nice figure comes out and that's shown on some slide at some conference, but that the software that I develop will actually run in production somewhere and people will rely on in their work that it functions as it is expected. And I think that's, that's something that definitely changed uh, in the way how I perceived my work. But I think luckily I was in a situation with a team that I never felt like that was over- overwhelming for me. It's a great thing if you realize that the work that you do actually is used by people and has an impact and is useful.
0: Can you tell us about your decision process when you decided to work at 52 Degrees North over a more traditional academic path?
1: I think that maybe goes back to something that I just said. So it's really this combination of working more on the applied side of research. So not worrying about the core details or the next big thing in core computer science, but trying to take these things that somebody else invented and putting it to good use in specific applications. I think that's a pretty interesting position in this innovation cycle. It's a pretty interesting spot. And at the same time, I knew that at the company, because it was basically applied research, I could still use the newest methods. I would not fall down or go down a road where I would develop a piece of software and then maintain the same software for the next 20 years and only do one thing. I knew that there would always be new research projects coming up and new challenges. And I think that initially drew me towards that over a regular software developer job and over a more scientific career. I think it was the opportunity, as I said before, to work with customers and really hard problems and to solve those in a good way.
0: So 52 Degrees North, it's considered a nonprofit.
1: Yes, that's correct. They call it not-for-profit. In the contract between the founding companies, which are two universities and two companies, and the universities actually have the majority share together, they have put into words that all gains that the company makes go back into research.
0: Wow, that's really interesting. My next question was going to be to ask you sort of if you're familiar with what their business model is, who the customers are, how they make it from year to year.
1: So the business model is really participate in research projects. At the time that I was there, the goal was to have around maybe 60% of funding from research projects, and the other 40% was more traditional professional services, as we call it, software development for money. And I think that is a great combination because it allows them to hire people who are good or interested maybe in both areas, and also they are able to provide a long-term perspective for developers and that's something that i actually forgot to mention before so uh, when i got there i had proper unlimited contract which i gave up when i went back to academia and i think that's certainly something that i was reminded of when i a few years later had first contacts with the rse community is that everybody was sort of a bit of complaining about the work situation academia and i was like well i've had the other side and I gave it up. Yeah, I was a bit hesitant if I or thinking back if I maybe made a mistake. But I think that's a great part of the business model that Fifty Two North has, that they try to offer people a long term career path and that they can do that. And that's
0: that's a great thing. Do you know how the creation of Fifty Two Degrees North coincided or perhaps did not coincide with the RSC movement?
1: 52 degrees north, the foundation, it, it predates the RSE movement. The reason it was founded is that at the time, members from the Institute for Geoinformatics at the University of Münster realized that there is no smooth transition of new findings from research into products that customers could use or into products that could be co-developed with other software companies. They wanted to close this gap. As far as I know, that pretty much predated most of the RSE movement. But recently, 52 Years North actually connected back with me, and I was very happy to chat with them about research of engineering and the RSE communities. And they've actually started advertising their new job announcements as RSEs. So they've been doing research of engineering for quite a while, and now they even call it that. And I think that's great.
0: Yeah, I think that's really great too. And I hope that they can coexist with traditional RSC groups in universities. I generally think that having like a little bit of competition or choices when you're looking for an RSC is a good thing. And I definitely think there's enough work out there to support both of them. And probably just the question is if you have a limited pool of researchers that can pay for a project, are they gonna go to a company like 52 Degrees North or are they gonna first go to their local RSC group?
1: So I totally agree about the fact that there is enough work out there. And maybe the the great setup of 52 Degrees North is that they can be both a company that you just hire and you let them develop software for you, or they can also be a partner in a research project. This is actually a common situation or was a common situation when I still worked there, that the role that the developers from 52 North took was pretty much connecting the research partners in the larger project with the software experts in the project and really taking the role of the software developers within a research project. And I think that's a great role to have, just important as it is to have an RSE in a research project to take a responsibility for the software quality side.
0: Why did you decide to go back to academia?
1: I've always found the idea interesting to work in research. And if you want to do that long-term in the situation that I faced, then I was pretty sure that I need to have a PhD to do that. So if I wanted to become a PI, if I want to take on or take over specific responsibilities or specific roles, uh, there's just many things you cannot do without a PhD. Just as simple as being able to apply for grant money. And that's because I was still thinking about a career in academia. And even though it's a very long shot, I have not ruled it completely out, maybe to at some point become a professor. I have then decided, well, if I want to keep this path open, I need to get myself a PhD. So I I took the opportunity when it came. But it's not only about getting the degree and getting the title, but also I had a lot of curiosity for the topic that was available, which actually was about reproducible research. And I'm still working in the same area and the same project. And I don't regret the step at all. I'm working with a great team and have an awesome supervisor. And yeah, I couldn't, couldn't be happier with my work.
0: Can you tell our listeners what does it mean for something to be reproducible? And how did you get interested in this topic in the first place?
1: So it's a good, it's a good that we start with the definition of reproducibility, because sometimes that can be confusing for people, because there's a few different terms out there that some people use in different ways. So luckily, there's more and more consensus developing. So Reproducibility means that one person, one researcher, conducted a workflow, uh, used some data or generated data, then developed a piece of software or some script to analyze this data, then published the results, for example, some other data set, or create a graphic or a figure from it. For this workflow to be reproduced by another researcher, that means that the third party uses the same data and the same code, and then in a successful reproduction comes to the same conclusions that means it generates the same data or creates the same figure and that is different from a replication which means that you were not using the same data set or the same methodology but you're basically redoing the whole research process but you are trying to answer the same scientific question and if you manage to do that then you've actually achieved a replication And replications are a very important topic, especially when you have studies, for example, in psychology or in health research, where you really want to make sure that the results are consistent between different methods and different data sets. And how I became interested in reproducible research, I'm really surprised that's actually a hard question, because I've been thinking about it for basically all the time for the last, I think, five years. I don't recall. The initial interest might have been a technical one. So the challenge to capture your virtual laboratory, as I sometimes say, that that is something that many researchers struggle with, to use containerization to solve the problem to some extent. I think this this realization that it's hard to achieve a good snapshot of what your current setup on a computer is, especially hard for people who are not computer scientists. This realization coincided with my growing interest in containerization and Docker it was a great match. And then I, after I realized that that's an interesting topic to pursue, I didn't look back.
0: Do you think that the challenges around reproducibility have been more technical, cultural, or a little bit of both?
1: I would say a little bit of both, or even say a lot of both. On the technical side, I think if you are capable of developing software or if you're able to create a computational workflow, you can, as a researcher, also handle all the technical challenges to achieve very, very high reproducibility. That doesn't mean that something is going to be reproducible forever, but certainly for the next five to 10 years to come. So I think on the technical side, there are many good practices out there that people can learn about And that people can follow and that's less of a challenge as i would have said five years ago on the cultural side however i also had to learn over the last years that you really need a lot of persistence and patience to introduce the changes you need to have more reproducible research reproducibility as a technical challenge is something that you can teach people but reproducibility as a cultural challenge, you are touching on a lot of hard problems that we face in the sciences around giving credit, around developing careers, and around how we work together as scientists. And these problems are much bigger than just the technical reproducibility. And to change the way that we evaluate researchers, to change the way how we evaluate research projects, uh, is certainly something that You cannot do from one day to the other, but that I come to realize uh, might really take a generation of researchers to change this culture. But it's just as important as answering the technical challenges uh, that we come to new ways to really not only help researchers in working in a more reproducible way, but also that we agree on practices that we can eventually require researchers to work in a more reproducible way.
0: I agree. And when you think about it, just in the fact that change in reproducible practices would require this change in behavior and norms, akin to how, if you want to start going for a run every day or eating healthier, those changes in habits, I think are one of the hardest things to do. And I I think that's why it's taking a long time because we can't do things the same way that we've always done them.
1: I totally agree. And a typical problem for researchers is that they start thinking about reproducibility when they are towards the end of a project. They want to publish a paper and then they look at the author guidelines and they realize, oh, okay, so I should publish my data and my code. Well, but my code is not really well documented which is a bogus feeling, but, but they don't know better. So they say, well, maybe it's better if I don't share it. And that's just a point in time that's way too late to start working in a reproducible way. So ideally, you start way earlier than that. And that's also one part of the project that I'm working in right now is that we've started a reproducible research support service, as we call it, where we offer researchers to help offer them help with setting up their research environment and their workflows in such a way that reproducibility will just be something that happens naturally. And at the same time, we offer them to actually reproduce the workflows before they submit them to a journal, for example, so that we can be an independent party and they can have a higher trust in the stability and then of their results. So I think that's a great service and it's inspired by others. That offer the same service and other universities that do this, the SIZER program comes to mind, that's unfortunately not very well used yet by researchers. So I'm I'm hoping that we'll find a few opportunities to help researchers to create reproducible research before it's too late.
0: That's a really cool idea for a service. So let's say I'm a researcher and I have no idea what I'm doing with respect to reproducibility. Can you walk me through what an interaction would look like and how you would help me?
1: Right. So this will mostly be what I would hope it will be like. And unfortunately, I don't have a lot of data to support that yet. But yeah, let's think through that. So first, I would ask you what kind of analysis you want to do and what kind of data you have. One very important thing is that the data that you collect, you can already start considering reproducibility there and also... The way you store the data, for example, and which parts of the data you store. Do you store raw data or is your data so big that you cannot store all intermediate steps, but you can only store pre-processed data, for example. So I think that's something that I would like to figure out together with you. And the amount of data that you have, the type of data that you have is also closely connected to the kind of methods you will use and the kind of processing power that you will use. So I think that would also be very interesting for me. Is it something that you will run on your own computer where you have full control over your environment? Or is it something where you need some high-performance computing environment, which will make things a lot more complex? Finally, I would of course be interested in the software that you use. I would really, really hope that you already use programming language such as Python or R, which means that you will use code and scripts to run your analysis. In a worse scenario, you would tell me that you use some graphical user interface-based software where you go through some kind of click path to create your your workflow or, or do your analysis. And that's of course way harder to reproduce than if you have a nicely scripted workflow. So I think that would definitely be the questions for our first conversation.
0: So earlier you mentioned containerization And we worked on a paper together, The 10 Simple Rules for Writing Docker Files for Reproducible Data Science. Can you share with us what you learned when writing that paper?
1: What I learned is that uh, one thing is that the term simple is really a matter of experience and practice. One of the things about the paper that I would say is that we call it 10 simple rules but they are pretty simple only at first sight. So if you really want to put everything that we thought about in the paper and that we describe in the paper into use, it might not be simple at first. What I learned also through looking at a lot of different Docker files that researchers published is that it's really hard to make sure that something that you understand is also understandable by others. I think that's one of the core ideas behind the 10 simple rules papers to make sure that there's some kind of consensus and some kind of understanding of what is needed to communicate effectively. And in this case, we effectively want to communicate about the computational environment that somebody uses. And to do that, it's not enough to just put a Docker file somewhere in a repository, but the way that you write this Docker file can really make or break an effective communication with another person that might just look at this way later. And I think that's an important lesson that I took away.
0: I thought it was really interesting. I I realized quickly that it's talking about reproducible practices is a slightly different conversation depending on who you're chatting with. So for example, if you're more of a data scientist, you may create a Docker file and you're only going to run it on your local machine and you throw stuff in roots home you don't think about the user namespace and if you're more of like a software engineer and you maybe want to envision running your thing on hpc then you start to think more about permissions and you wouldn't put stuff in roots home and who's the user in the container and it's really interesting because we sort of are, when we look at a code base so a repository on github We arrive at that code base with some kind of expectation about what we want to do in our mind. And you're totally right that if it's not explicitly stated, like, okay, we're going to build this container, we're going to push it to Docker Hub, we're going to pull it down uh, with singularity, it can be very hard to even start to know how to reproduce it because you're not in the head of the person that wrote it.
1: Yes, absolutely. And it's also important to manage these expectations or to be aware that somebody else might have a different perspective, which is... One of the really just hard challenges in in all communications is imagining what the other person might have as, as previous knowledge or what the other person might be interested in and bringing that together with your own challenges and your own needs. You might not always feel like you have the time to get something very close to perfect, but... Then again, I think also with the rules that we came up with, we also want to make sure that it's not only about communicating with others, but about communicating with your future self. And I've, that's also something that I learned from the paper, because it, it took it took a little while until we polished it into a state that we could, could share it more broadly, that revisiting thoughts that I've or you've or, or other people had earlier sometimes surprised me again and again, because you kind of remember everything that there is. And I think that's also important to realize that when you communicate research and when you communicate your computational workflows, it's not just about how others can understand it, but also how uh, you yourself can understand and extend and, and build on it later on. So that definitely makes me think about the famous five selfish reasons to work reproducible paper that's, uh, that I can recommend uh, everybody to read who's interested in getting started with reproducible research.
0: It's interesting to think about publication as this venue for sharing this information because a publication is the single point in time. It was our best effort at that moment to express our understanding of what it means to be reproducible. But when we look at that paper in 10 years, our future selves may totally disagree and maybe things will be totally different. And so it's almost like we choose that venue of publication because that's the accepted way to share information in academia and get citations. But on the other hand, it's like a terrible venue because it's not a living document. It's not something that can change over time as the world changes.
1: Yes, I totally agree. And I do recall that there is an issue open on the repository that we were thinking about putting this into a more dynamic website form. But you're right. I'm a supporter of open science, and I encourage everybody to share their work as preprints and to work openly I myself never had a disadvantage that I know of that came from working openly. So I've put my code up on GitHub or GitLab before I submitted papers all the time. And it was never like somebody said, well, you've published this code before, so we cannot accept your paper anymore. While I'm pushing towards more openness in my own research and I also try to push others, Yes, we're still playing the game of academic, well, of, of building an academic career uh, like everybody else. So we do need a few papers and we do need to publish in uh, respected and, and high quality journals, whatever that means, what, what a high quality journal is, to build our careers. And that's something that also is a question of cultural change and something that I think is uh, more and more people realize that we need to tackle as cultural change. But it's, again, not something that is changing quickly.
0: So speaking of communities and culture, one community that you care about is DERC, a growing arm of research software engineers in Germany. Can you tell us about your involvement in the community and what you're hoping for this new year?
1: Yes, DERC, or as we say in German, if I may do so, the the Gesellschaft für Forschungssoftware. So the German Society for Research Software was founded A few years ago, and I was fortunate enough to be one of the founding members. My involvement there really started also uh, from the same pain points and maybe frustration about the fact that there was no clear career path for me if I wanted to still develop software in an academic setting didn't say before, but if you develop software in academia, I think what often comes with the work that we do is that there is a very strong meaning behind the work that we do. Just like I was caught by the idea of doing software development in geoinformatics that's connected to something out there in the real world, when you do software development in academia, you're solving important challenges in research. So if you want to focus on software development, There's currently no real career path for you. and I think that's sort of what brought me into this community and why I decided to join. I would really say it's a bit of an egoistic start to do this community work and to work towards accepting research software engineering as an important role in research. But I think that's how it is for quite a few people there, actually, that we think research software is very important for research. Most research couldn't be done without it, and it's not taken care of as much as it should be. And subsequently, the people who develop research software are not taken care of. And that's something that we, just as other RC communities around the world, want to point out and want to change.
0: That's beautifully stated. So as you're finishing up your PhD, you mentioned earlier you were maybe considering an academic path or you didn't want to rule it out. Do you have a sense of what you'd like to do for your next step?
1: So I do know about the first step that I'm going to take, and that's to continue a little bit to help people work more in a, in a more reproducible way. And during this, uh, as you pointed out, this challenge between technical and cultural aspects of reproducibility, I think one of the side projects, you could say, that I will be really keen on developing further is CodeCheck, where together with Stephen Eglin from University of Cambridge, I came up with something that might help to introduce cultural change, which is maybe more important than technical stuff that I focused on for the last few years. And the idea of CodeCheck is that we wanna bring code execution into the peer review or maybe back into the peer review by making it more explicit that code execution has happened as part of peer review you could argue that it should already happen, but in our experiences, uh, in many cases where papers are submitted and reviewed, people rarely look at the code or try to run the workflow. And that's often a challenge of time, but also a problem of bringing uh, the right expertise. And that's where, why we decided, let's maybe just for, for a certain number of years until every peer reviewer starts running the code, have a specific role, and also a specific label and, and process for papers being executed uh, before they are published. And yeah, we call this system CoCheck, and we've we've came up with a few principles, how we think this could work. And that's really a project that's very dear to my heart. The greatest thing about it is that bringing different expertises into peer review also means that maybe we can bring RSEs or RSE types into the peer review process because they are perfectly skilled to not maybe read the whole paper and understand all the science, but they have the skills to take the code and run it and see if the results are the same as the researcher presents them in the paper. And that's not only RSEs, but also think that it's early career researchers who would be perfectly suited to to fill this role of code checker. If I can choose what my next steps are, it will have to do something with code check.
0: I hope that's successful. I was just thinking, I wonder if there could be some way of getting paid for peer review, but maybe we're still far away from that.
1: There is the 550 movement by James Heathers. So there is definitely people pondering the idea of getting paid to review. And that's actually one opportunity that we see also that because software or code execution as part of peer review might not be easy to do. It could just be that there are RSEs on staff with a publisher who can take care of these things. But I think that it's probably more likely that just as with many journals today, we have volunteer reviewers, uh, but then it's really important that public credit is given. And public credit is something that's an p- important part of the RSE community, that we want to make sure that the contributions that researchers make to research are publicly credited. For example, to have RSEs as, as co-authors on papers. And I just like the idea to come on or tackle the problem from another angle, and that's publicly acknowledging the contributions that research software engineers can make as reviewers.
0: We're coming up on time. I have just a few, two more questions. What is most fulfilling about the work that you do?
1: I think most fulfilling about the work that I do is the feeling that you have when you have successfully reproduced somebody else's code. So you've maybe had to dig deep. You had to solve your own problems. Didn't work perfectly from the beginning. But when you then have achieved that, you can be proud that you did. And when you then tell the other person and say, here is my little report that I wrote during the reproduction, and it was mostly successful. And when then the researcher thanks you and says, this is really great. So this makes me really happy. I think that's the the most fulfilling moments I have.
0: And final question, when you aren't working, what do you like to do in your free time?
1: If I ask the question, maybe let's just strike out the year 2020. Can we do that?
0: Yes, 2020 did not happen.
1: Great. So in my free time, I like to prepare and eat good food. And I like to play ultimate Frisbee, the greatest sport ever invented by a man.
0: Care to explain that qualifier? (laughs)
1: It's a quote from a, it's actually the title of a book that somebody wrote about Ultimate Frisbee. And I just put it that way because for me, there's really not a big question about it. The great thing about Ultimate Frisbee is that it's a self-officiated sport. So we don't have one referee. We have 14 referees because there's 14 players on the field, seven on each side. We self-officiate. So we call the rules and breakages of rules ourselves. And that means there's really no point in cheating. And because your opponent can just call the foul or tell you that you were out or you didn't catch the disc. If you play it for a few years, uh, you realize that this just leads to the point that where even on a very competitive level, people just don't cheat. And you acknowledge when somebody else runs faster and jumps higher or has better skills that they are winning, and you can still enjoy that. And I think that makes the sport a uh, beautiful thing. And that also makes up the community. And that's why I enjoy playing.
0: Daniel, it's been such a pleasure talking to you today. It was really fulfilling working with you on that best practices paper. And I really enjoy talking about and thinking about the work that you're doing. And I'm really glad that you're doing it because it's so important. It feels that sometimes this meta work around how we do research and making sure that it's sustainable and reproducible kind of doesn't get the attention that it deserves because it's not traditional science. So I really wish you the best of luck with CodeCheck and I'm looking forward to seeing how that grows and also like what you do for your next step because I think it's undoubtedly going to be awesome.
1: Oh thank you so much. That's very kind of you to say. And thank you for the honor to contribute to this podcast and for with your own means helping to shine the light on the challenges around reproducibility and, and research software engineering. And with the attention that, that your work provides, I'm optimistic that we can uh, tackle a few of the challenges that we've touched on today. So thank you. And thanks, everybody, for listening.
0: My pleasure. And take care.